Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. I remember in my first year uh, science classes at um, at high school, back in the late uh, 1950s, we were had to learn the uh, order of the planets, and um, we were we learnt the theory that the the solar system uh, formed um, when there was a swirling cloud of um, of uh, hot dust, and it uh, condensed and collapsed, and uh, and formed the, the the planets. And of course, uh, this theory, although it was proposed uh, a long time ago by uh, Laplace, uh, the um, uh, very clever uh, mathematician who lived in the um, uh, the late. Uh, the second half of the 1700s and the early 1800s. Uh, he's a, a French mathematician, and we have Laplace transforms and so forth in mathematics. And um, uh, he um, was one of the pioneers of this uh, idea, uh, which is uh, now called the nebula hypothesis. And um, it's probably the most widely accepted model used to explain the formation of our solar system uh, by some uh, process of you know astronomical type uh, evolution as such um, the, um, the theory however has some some huge problems really really huge problems um, and um, uh, you know one of the issues is how can this collapsing cloud of of dust explain the the origin of the star. So to form the sun or any star, a cloud must be dense enough to collapse on itself due to gravity and compress the interior so that it becomes hot enough for nuclear fusion to uh, start. And um, the problem is, of course, that if you have to have a really, really massive cloud in order to uh, so that gravity can overcome the tendency for the for the gas just to expand, um, and so um, according to the Big Bang theory, of course, when the first stars formed, the temperatures were so high um, that um, the uh, the mass required because the you know to for them to condense. Um, is um, is calculated to be equivalent to about a hundred thousand suns, and uh, so there's a massive problem here uh, with the theories of uh, of star formation, um, and uh, you know this is one of the things. All the uh, theories of star formation have uh, have problems, and. Um, uh, it's interesting, uh, a textbook that was published, uh, Accretion Processes in Star Formation, um, by Earl Hartman, uh, Cambridge University Press. It was published back in 2008. There's a very brief discussion of this on pages 57 to 58. And um, so there's, you know, major, major problems with how the you can have enough mass to... Um, um, you know, collapse into a star and form the the sun in the first place. 
The other thing is that if the the sun and the plants were formed by a collapsing sort of you know cloud of dust, and the sun should be spinning in the same plane as the planets. However, um, it's uh, if we define the Earth's orbit as being the sort of the primary or orbit, then we find that um, the sun itself is spinning on its axis. Um, at about seven degrees different. Um, and so, um, again, this, this is a, a problem. Why, what, what caused this deviation in the, in, the, in the spin, in the plane of spin? Um, uh, of course, most of the, uh, the theory that the planets formed is that they arose from the collisions of these dust particles uh, which heated and stuck together to form larger, you know, particles um, of welded rock, and then these blobs further, you know, accumulated to form larger blobs and and so forth, and eventually the 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 planets uh, formed. So this is the theory, but you know, research is showing that the, the rocks simply wouldn't stick together; they'd most likely zoom, you know, past each other. And um, yeah, this was discussed really in a in a uh, just a brief article called "The Earth Was a Freak," which was published in New Scientist um, in March two thousand and three uh, by H. Muir. Um, so there's a lot of problems with our um, you know uh, solar solar system, and um, the other thing is uh, too that. Um, according to the evolutionary models, the huge planets like Jupiter and Saturn, which are gas giants, could have formed only if they were far enough away from the sun so that the ice could not condense. Um, and this would produce um, additional mass. This would provide the additional mass to draw in gas from the nebula and the ice would help the rocks to bond. So... Um, and uh, Jupiter's core would need to be about 20 Earth masses to do this, but models of Jupiter indicate that its core is actually only about five Earth masses at most, even if uh, they exist. So um, the um, and the, there was an interesting article again on this published in New Scientist in July 2004, um, and. Um, the um, a, 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 um, a leading uh, planetary theorist, theorist Alan Boss, uh, was quoted as saying, "The leading theory for giant planet formation, and that's like Saturn and Jupiter, has encountered a mortal blow." Um, so again, and this is the fascinating thing: we read in the Bible that God created the sun, that God created the moon, that God created you know, the Earth and the planets, the stars. And the and it's it's amazing how the the evidence is just so clear that um, the um, that there's no theory that we know of using just the laws of physics that can you know can explain the the structure. Um, for example, Venus rotates in the opposite direction, so it's called a retrograde. So there's all these problems. With the um, with theories trying to explain our solar system, um, 
However, one of the things that I think is causing a lot of doubt in the Bible, again, is this this long ages, you know, of the, the claim that the solar system is, you know, billions of, of years old. But again, there's major problems when we assume these ages for the stars and the, and the planets. And we talked about some of the issues with uh, Mercury uh, just in one of the recent programs. Um, but when we uh, look at um, uh, what we know now about all the different planets, there are so many unique um, properties that these planets have that many point to a very, very young age. Um, And so it's interesting that um, when we think about our our sun there um, and, um, you know, all the light, um, it was proposed back in 1939 by Hans Bethe that that stars, including our sun, are powered by nuclear fission. And he actually won the 1967 Nobel Prize in physics uh, for his theory. And so in the fusion reaction, uh, extremely fast-moving hydrogen nuclei join to form helium. And this requires temperatures of millions of degrees. Now, some mass is lost and converted into a huge amount of energy as per Einstein's equation, you know, E equals mc squared. And so you can think of it as the sun is like a gigantic uh, hydrogen bomb. And it's uh, fascinating, according to some of the statistics that um, scientists have uh, have measured, it would seem that there's about 4 million tonnes of matter are converted into energy every second. (laughs) So um, that's, uh, you know, the, the sun, the enormity of the sun is, is huge, of course. Um, and, um, and one of the factors, of course, is that the fusion produces a vast number of extremely low-mass particles called neutrinos that travel nearly as fast as light. And um, the... Um, it's the sun, of course, has claimed to be about four and a half billion years old. That's when our solar system is, is deemed to have formed and the earth and, and so forth. However, um, it's, um, it's quite uh, fascinating, of course, that this rate at which the um, energy is being used up and so forth um, poses a problem for the billions of years. And one of the reasons is this. All living things on Earth, we obtain our energy essentially from the sun and the wind and the water cycles. And we know that the sun is powered by this nuclear uh, fusion. And the thing is that as nuclear fusion takes place, the sun's core should shrink. And so this would make further fusion reactions occur more readily and therefore the sun should shine more brightly as it ages. But this means that if billions of years were true, the sun would have been much fainter in the past. However, there's no evidence that the sun was fainter in any time in Earth's history. Now, uh, astronomers actually refer to this as the, the faint sun uh, paradox, um, 
But of course, if the Earth is only 6,000 years old and the Sun only 6,000 years old, which the Bible says, we don't have a problem. So if we look at the evolution theory, of course, we've got that you know, life appeared on Earth. They're claiming now about 3.8 billion years ago or somewhere between you know, 2 billion and 3.8. But if that timescale were true, the sun would be 25% brighter today than it was back then. So that implies that back then, with a cooler sun, the Earth actually would have been frozen at an average temperature of about minus 3 degrees. However, it's interesting that paleontologists believe that, if anything, the Earth was warmer in the past. So the only way around them for for their for uh, you know the evolutionary paleontologists is to make arbitrary and unrealistic assumptions of far greater greenhouse effect um, than at uh, than exists today. Um, in fact, um, they want about uh, up to about a thousand times more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's interesting that. Um, Analyses of uh, you know algal microfossils that are dated about one and a half billion years old, uh, when the sun would have been only you know eighty eight percent as bright as it is today, um, uh, provide evidence for only you know ten to two hundred times today's level of carbon dioxide. Uh, but still, the researchers you know hope that. Uh, that might have compensated for the the fainter sun, um, and it, it's it's quite interesting. There was um, uh, people in interest in reading up on this. There's an article published in Nature back on the 18th of September, two double o three, uh, looking at the carbon dioxide levels at that time. So we can see um, that again. When people try to, uh, scientists try to accommodate these really, really long ages into the evolution theory, they come into major problems and you end up, as I said, with unreal, the need for unrealistically high carbon dioxide levels. Um, and so, and this is something, again, when people take into account evolutionary theory and they, they forget about the problems such as... Um, you know the the fact that the if the sun was really you know that much uh, older, um, it wouldn't be um, it wouldn't be as bright back then, because suns get brighter as they age, which is I guess counterintuitive to a lot of people. So it's interesting too um, when we look at the uh, sunspots. Of course, we see and there are some giant sunspots that are on the on the sun that can uh, be observed. Um, it's I- interesting that uh, Gail Leo did quite a bit of research uh, on these and there are some sunspots really that are almost um, the equivalent of the diameter of the Earth. And um, it's uh, I- I- interesting that um, the Encyclopedia Botanica uh, talks about uh, the the problems that Galileo had, and a lot of people think that Galileo was you know struggling against the um, uh, the church, and you know the church had got everything wrong. But what had happened, of course, was uh, that some members of the church had adopted the current um, secular scientific view at the time, rather than the biblical view, and. Um, 
it's um, interesting that there was a, a book published called The Crime of Galileo. Um, it's published by University of Chicago Press some time ago now, back in 1955, uh, by G.D. Santillana. Um, and it's interesting, in the introduction on page 12, um, he... Um, Santillana, who was a professor of history of science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology at the time, points out, and uh, he's quoted as, it has been known for a long time that a major part of the church intellectuals were on the side of Galileo, while the clearest opposition to him came from secular ideas. And so, um, again, we see that um, there's a, a, so much you know, misinformation has circulated in attempts to discredit the Bible and the, the Bible account. One of the fascinating things uh, that we can observe here on Earth is a, is a solar eclipse. And the, a total eclipse is possible because the moon is almost exactly the same angular size or half a degree in the sky as the sun. That is, you know, both the uh, moon is 400 times smaller in diameter than the sun and it's 400 times closer than the sun. Um, and again, this looks like a, a special, um, uh, uh, you know, design feature for us to um, to enjoy uh, creation, a creationist astronomer, uh, Dr. Danny Fortner, has shown that solar eclipses, as we see on Earth, are probably unique to the solar system. Um, and so, at the the present time, there's no other um, uh, sort of planet-moon combination that comes close. So, it's another fascinating uh, aspect that again points to um, the you know, design of our, our solar system. Um, now, another thing, and I've, I've talked about this in earlier uh, faith and science uh, talks, the, um, when there's a, a total eclipse of the sun, you, you see the sun's outer atmosphere or corona is, is visible, and this is an extremely thin layer of ionised gas which is very, very hot. Um, it's about 2 million um, degrees um, and parts of it can get up to um, uh, you know, um, 20 million degrees. And um, so it's actually about 350 times hotter than the sun's surface. And this has been a major mystery for scientists because heat normally flows from hot objects to cooler ones how can this outer layer of the sun be so much hotter than the um, the inner you know temperature of the uh, of the sun? So um, uh, of course uh, there's uh, a theory that involves the sun's strong magnetic field um, and that the connection of the magnetic flux lines theoretically could re release large amounts of energy in the, into the corona. And, of course, this is being studied uh, for, as um, possible application in fusion power research. Um, so there's a, a few um, you know, theories where scientists are looking at trying to uh, explain this. One of the fascinating things, of course, is... Um, 
when you uh, when you're doing a drawing <laughs> uh, at school and you're asked to colour in the sun, we generally colour it in yellow. We don't colour it in um, yellow. Uh, we don't colour it in white. But in actual fact, um, it is uh, it is white. Uh, the sun um, uh, loses some of that um, uh, colour, of course, um, as the light uh, passes through the atmosphere, and that's because the shorter wavelength uh, colours, um, such as um, the um, you know, blue-green, indigo-violet sort of end, are scattered by the Earth's atmosphere, and it's mainly the red, orange, yellow that get through uh, to us. And um, so there's some, you know, fascinating um, aspects of our sun. But I think one of the things that we think about it is, again, that if it was really uh, billions of years old, um, this is a major problem in terms of the amount of heat the Earth would have been, you know, much colder um, at... um, at that particular time, and of course, if the you know the Earth's atmosphere, the if the carbon dioxide content was you know so much higher, then that would again you know affect the um, any carbon fourteen dating as well. Um, but of course, when we look at carbon fourteen dating, this is other evidence for a young Earth because after about a hundred thousand years, we'd have no detectable carbon fourteen. But we find carbon-14 in wood that's trapped in lava, dated millions of years old and, and in dinosaur remains and all these sort of things. So we can see that there's a whole massive problem when we look at trying to explain um, life on Earth through the, the Big Bang Theory that has you know, the whole uh, universe and uh, evolving over, you know, about 13, 14 billion years um, and then our star system, solar system forming, you know, after four and a half billion years ago, um, all this sort of thing. Um, We have, you know, major, major problems when you look at all the implications for what these long time scales mean And and the fact that you've got planets like Venus uh, spinning the opposite direction. You've got the planets aren't in this in in the same plane. They're off on different planes. Um, we've got the magnetic field um, effects that I spoke about, for example, and, and Mercury that uh, point to uh, a young ages. There's so much that points either directly to young ages for our solar system or can only be explained satisfactory in terms of life on Earth with our um, young solar system. And this is, this is so important that we get this understanding. When we look at our education system today, it's just totally enamoured with long ages and it, it just um, you know, goes through the whole concept of people's everyday lives now. We, we think in terms of, of um, you know, the surface of the earth being millions of years old, even though, again, as I've pointed out, you know, an, on a number of times, if we look at erosion rates, that we can go out and measure now, the continents would erode away in less than 10 million years. 
and uh, we've seen just massive erosion occurring on our uh, beaches and on our coastline lately where you know sand has been washed away to uh, to bedrock and and so forth and so we can see how you know in just a few years uh, things can change dr- dramatically um, I, I suppose uh, I grew up um, when I well, when I was a little boy. Um, I lived with my parents uh, on the beachside suburb of, of Stockton, and there was two sports ovals between our place on the Esplanade and the the beach itself. Well, now there's just barely a bit of park um, in in front. The beach has been eroded, you know, so far that, you know, the width of one and three-quarter sports ovals have gone, um, you know, in the past 60 years or so. And so when we consider these things, there's so much evidence that points to, you know, the, the biblical scenario. I know, you know, people claim all these long ages for civilizations and this sort of thing. But when I was doing my research looking at... Um, the chronologies that have been preserved, they all only go back about 2000 BC and then it just all stops. But we have a, you know, quite well-developed civilizations then um, uh, and, and suddenly this, this technology, buildings and so forth just suddenly appear. But it, again, it fits the scenario of highly intelligent people that were created by God that, you know, that then evil abounded, God had to destroy the world and it started again. But that not so much of that knowledge, particularly in building, mathematics, astronomy and this sort of thing was was preserved. The Bible picture in so much fits what we observe. It fits also in describing human nature and uh, evil and human behaviour. And it also, though, points to the hope that we can have that because there was an intelligent designer who's non-material, he can, after we die, preserve us and recreate us again, resurrect us, as the Bible talks about, to live eternally for him. In other words, death, physical death, is not the end of, of life. There is life that God promises for us through the Son, through himself, Jesus, who came, God, who came to earth and manifested himself uh, as, a, as a person to teach us firsthand how to live. And it's a wonderful message. It fits in so many ways. It fits logically in so many ways. And that's why great scholars like C.S. Lewis have, have written books about this, explaining how it fits so logically. You've been listening to Faith and Science, and if you've enjoyed these programs and found they're help, they've been helpful, please um, you know tell your friends about them on Facebook. There you can look them up by googling 3abnaustralia.org.au and uh, click on the radio button, and then on the menu there you'll see the Faith and Science. And um, there's well over a hundred programs on a whole range of topics that you can listen to that can help strengthen our faith that is truly a God who loves us. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day.
You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.